You say I travel as an 11 year old, as a tech person? There we go, we got it, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like trying to, if you ever, if you ever get just want to be humble, just hand an iPad to a four year old. They'll know more about it in no time than you ever have, so. Um, it's really nice to be with you. You have, you have welcomed me very well. Um, those of you who haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm sure I will meet you. Um, just feel free to come by and get a bead. It's The Godfather. That's my favorite movie. Um, yeah, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Um, so, but, um, last night we began by talking about the whole notion of the Bible as a five-act play. I want to talk about the scriptures with you, um, but I want to start with a story. Um, a young Jewish couple brought their three-year-old boy to their rabbi. They were devout. They were deeply committed to their faith and their tradition. They said they wanted to raise their son in the will of the, God, of the Lord. And so they said to the rabbi, if we could find, discern from God what our son will be when he grows up, then we could raise him to be faithful. Is there any way we could know God's will for our son's life? The rabbi said, yes, there's a very good way you can know, but here's what I need you to do. Tomorrow, I want you to take your son into one of the rooms, take everything else out of the room except for a table. On the table, put a chocolate cupcake, a bottle of scotch whiskey, a roll of $100 bills, and a Bible. If your boy, left alone, takes the chocolate cupcake, he will be an epicure. He will live for his stomach. If he takes the bottle of scotch whiskey, he will be a drunk. If he takes the roll of dollar bills, he'll be a lawyer. <laughs> but if he takes the Bible, he'll be a rabbi. They go home, they do the very same thing. They come back a week later and they said, we can't figure it out. Rabbi, we are completely and utterly confused. We put the little boy in the room. We put the table. We put the chocolate cupcake, the scotch whiskey, the roll of $100 bills, and the Bible. He walked into the room. He immediately ate the cupcake, drank the scotch whiskey, pocketed the $100 bills, and he won't stop reading the Bible. The rabbi goes, oh my gosh, I have incredibly bad news for you. Your son is going to grow up to be a Presbyterian. <laughs> Okay, so why do I tell that story? Because for all of our foibles, we Presbyterians have always been people of the book. For all the things that we may do or not do, for all the ways in which we may stumble and err, or in our enthusiasm for our causes or our own concerns, we have always been people of the book. The Presbyterians, our tradition is about being a people who are deeply committed to the scriptures. And this is good news for us. The problem, however, is we have to ask ourselves over and over and over again, what difference does the Bible make? Today, this morning, on my Facebook feed, I found an article someone clipped that talks about the fact that 88% of Americans have Bibles. 88%. 13% of Americans will buy a new Bible this year. 13%. 40 million Bibles are bought every year. We know that the Bible is the biggest single best-selling book of all time. What most of us don't realize is that it is the single best-selling book of the year every year. So why is there not more difference? And why is there not more difference even amongst us as Christians? We, you know the statistics as well as I do, right? We have uh, Americans have among the highest crime, divorce, depression, and suicide rates of all leading nations, and yet we have all these Bibles. And being churchgoers doesn't seem to make that much difference. In our culture, there's very little statistical difference between churchgoers and non-churchgoers about racial prejudice or the way we use our money or anxiety or divorce. George Gallup wrote and concluded in his study of American religion, while a religion is 
still highly popular in America. It is to a large extent superficial. It does not change people's lives to the degree one would expect from their level of professed faith. So why is this? I want to suggest that the problem isn't in all of our Bibles, isn't the problem in the way in which we read our Bibles. That most of us tend to read our Bibles as a book of maxims or of wise sayings or of helpful advice or of facts to argue about or principles to debate. But that the Bible is given to us instead, as we said last night, as a grand and true story that is to be enacted. That is a script. That is the credible story of the creator who created this world good and though it has fallen, continues to not give up on his creation, but instead personally comes to heal his world through his people. That there's a five-act play. And this morning we'll talk briefly about the first two acts. There's creation, God created the world and it was good, and there's fall. And in that good, good world, brokenness came. And that you and I are encouraged to not only believe this to be true, but to enter into the story. Powerful play does go on, as Walt Whitman said. And you may contribute a verse. You and I were created to make a contribution to the great story of God in the world. That when we say yes in belief, and we say and and add our own participation, our faithful participation to that story, the story goes forward. And when in doubt, we do something. We don't just sit and act and assent, but we literally set our hearts upon a credo, I believe, like the first two words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe, doesn't just seemingly mean I give assent to, it means I set my heart upon. you got to realize, in good Hebraic understanding, the heart is not the seat of the emotions. Uh, for the Jews, the guts are the emotions. It's why when you fall in love, your stomach goes flip-flop. Or when you see that person you have a crush on that you want to throw up a little bit. <laughs> the guts are the seat of the emotion. The heart is the seat of the will. It's what guides and controls our actions. It's the control tower. It's what we decide to do. So when we say we are people who believe the scriptures, we are saying, this I will do. I believe that this is the good news of God, and I will put my life in the middle of that story and let that story define me. So five acts. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church. And this morning, let's begin with Acts 1 and 2. If you'll pull out your little booklet, we're not going to read this whole set of scriptures. It's all here for you to be able to reflect on, but I want us to give you part of it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into trying to understand these first two acts. So let me start at the beginning of the, of the page for today. Creation and fall, it is good but broken. We'll do Genesis 1 and then a portion of Genesis 3, and then we'll dive in for today. Remember, right after the six days of creation that our friend showed us so well last night, right after that litany of it is good, 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 it is not good for the man to be alone. We then have this, the creation of the humankind together. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now we skip to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Skip with me to the other side of the page, the very last paragraph. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and knowing he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me pray for us. Lord, into your good world slithered the lies that we believe. And many of us could tell that story in our own tell that story in our families. We can tell that story in this morning. In the midst of all the things that you have given us that are so good, there are things that are so broken. And we want to not only know why, but we want to know the way forward. So since we want to believe the good news and contribute to it, teach us, we pray. Amen. I don't know if you ever saw an old movie called Grand Canyon, but in it, a wealthy L.A. lawyer tries to avoid traffic, um, it's, a, it's a hobby in L.A., uh, by driving through a neighborhood that is overrun with gangs. It's in the middle of the night, his expensive car stalls, and he must call for a tow truck. And while waiting for the truck, he is surrounded by a group of street toughs who certainly intend trouble. Just then, the tow truck driver shows up and interrupts the youth from accosting the lawyer. The driver is a kind and genial man who's obviously not unfamiliar with these mean streets, but the leader of the gang objects to his interference. Mac, the driver, takes the leader of the group aside. He tries a short lesson in metaphysics. He looks at him and says, man, the world ain't supposed to be like this. Maybe you don't know this, but it ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. 
And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. We all have had a moment like that, right? We've all had some moment in our lives where we know that as good as it might be at one moment, it could turn the next, and that it's not supposed to be this way. You might have found yourself crying in the middle of the night when your spouse came home and told you news you couldn't imagine. You might have found yourself picking up the phone early in the morning. You might have found yourself talking to your child or talking to your parent and beginning to wonder how the world could have turned so desperately, so tragically at this moment. You turn on the news and you can hardly believe what you've seen. You hear reports and you try to wonder what happened. Some of us can remember times when it seemed to be more simple. Others of us have days when it just seems so beautiful. You can spend a walk in a woods like this and realize that for generations upon generations upon generations, there were beautiful places in the middle of this earth that remind us of this Eden that we can't get back to. But all it takes is one cross word, one ill feeling, one burst of short temper, one desire. One moment of temptation on a business trip. One thought about a person who you never, who you loved, and never thought you'd ever feel that way, and know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm willing to believe, to bet that all of us agree with Mac, the truck driver. Life in all of its beauty and with all of its sweet moments and great joy still falls tragically short of what we hope and imagine. And even for those of us living in this beautiful, sweet part of the country, grateful for all we have, something within us still knows that everything is supposed to be different than the way it is. When we consider this, it jars us. Because we know that not only is the world different than the way it was supposed to be, but that we're different than the way we were supposed to be. We know we were made for better than this. And at our best moments, we can glimpse it, but far too often we fall short. So how do we make sense of this world that we're in? What is the way that we make sense of it? And this is exactly what these big biblical stories do. They try to make sense of the world. They try to speak of what we would call a worldview. They ask the larger questions. Who am I? Where am I? What's wrong? What's the solution? Every philosophy, every religion, every way of thinking must be able to make sense of the world. Who am I in this world? Where am I? What's the context of it? What is it? What's wrong? Why is it broken? And what's the way forth? For ancient Israel, their neighbors had a pretty consistent answer to the chaos. If you go back and read the early parts of the Old Testament, you will notice that it was written into a worldview that basically went like this. The world is the way the world is because the gods are doing this to us. It is the gods, the gods of all of the different, of, of our pagan shrines, who live in leisure and exploit humans. It is the gods who do this to us. It's their fault, the ancient Near Eastern neighbors to Israel would say. They created humans to be slaves, and through one tragedy after another, it's a way of keeping humans in check. If you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, you're getting close. Israel believed a different story. Every Israel believed in a God who told a different narrative. Israel believed in, believed in a scripture that told a different way of talking about this. About a God who created the world good. A God who is one God. One God who is sovereign over all. Who is loving and just. Who is all powerful and completely good. 
who created humans as an expression of love and created the world as a reflection of divine character. The world was created good. When you read that biblical account of creation, you can almost experience God's delight. It almost rolls like a, like a litany of praise. You can almost hear the call and response. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. And now it's broken. So Israel and all of us have to consider what went wrong. If we're to participate in this play about God who's cre who created this world good, who's redeeming it, then we have to understand the problem. If we don't understand the problem, we're going to come to the wrong solution. So what went wrong in our world? And in the final analysis, this story is not primarily about why or who gets the blame. It's the way out. It's how we move the story forward. How do we redeem the story so that it ends in a happy ending? And one of the best advantages we have as biblical Christians is we know the end of the book. The only question is whether we're going to participate in that story or not. So here's the theme for the morning. The world is not the way it is supposed to be, and neither are we. But God isn't finished with his creation, not by a long shot. Let me suggest briefly that these are the kind of things you have to understand if you're going to contribute your verse to the powerful play. You need to understand the way it is supposed to be, the way it is, and the way to go from here. The way the world is supposed to be, the way God created it, was to be so that we as humans would have purpose and freedom and limits within a good creation. God created the world good, and humans are the image of God. Let me tell you what it means to be in the image of God. Uh, for centuries, philosophers have debated this story. But if you look back in the scriptures, it actually has a very concrete definition. The image of God is simply this. When an ancient tribal king would conquer or move into a new area, and then would move on to the next area, they would leave behind an image bearer, someone who represented the king. And the image bearer would hold the image of the king, like a picture, a, a statue, uh, a carving. And if the image bearer held the image of the king, then anything the image bearer said the people would then believe. They spoke for the king. They represented. They represented the king. And so one of the reasons why Israel was told not to have graven images and why they couldn't worship idols is because they had the image of their king, God, all around them. Do you know where that image of God is? That image of the king that speaks and represents the king? I, I can show you. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's in us. Human beings are those who are given the responsibility to represent God to the creation. That's what it means that we have, uh, that we are called to dominate or to have dominion. It doesn't mean that we dominate in love. It means that we cultivate and keep. It means that we take care of this world. And we are called to take care of it and build it and fill it and be fruitful and multiply. Humans were made for sex and gardening. <laughs> to fill the world with goodness and to bring fruitfulness out of the world and to take good care of it. To make sure that things that are worth passing on are passed on. 
make sure that the good world is given is taken good care of. That's our job. It's to represent to all of creation the very purposes of the God who created it. And this is what it meant to be humans. And when we read God's intentions for humans, we realize that we have a sense of purpose with clear and meaningful work. That to be humans means we should have good purposeful work. That we have enormous freedom to enjoy creation with abandonedness and fearlessness. The serpent says to him, to says to Eve, you can't have any of the trees, can you? She says, no, we get to have all of the trees. Except for one. God gave us all of this except for this one. Because we are given incredible freedom, incredible purpose, and limits. The limitation is for one reason and one reason only. It's to simply remind those of us who walk around every single day, be, have, have exercising God-like responsibility, that even though God has entrusted us with a lot of stuff, we ain't God. It's like whenever you've trusted the keys to the really good car to the kid. Right? When your kid says, hey, can I take the fancy car out on my fancy date? And you go, sure, son. What a great idea. But don't remember, I'm the one paying for the insurance on that car. Right? It's whenever we've been entrusted with something good to us, and then after a while we start thinking that it belongs to us. God tells us we have enormous purpose, enormous freedom, and clear limitations. That when human beings remember that we are the chief part of creation, Psalm 8, even the angels admire humans who are made a little lower than God. That's who we are. Eden was this incredible, wonderful, safe place. And the prohibition for eating of the tree, from the tree is not immediately a problem. Humans are creatures. Creatures have limits. When we live with limitedness, we live well. And humans seem to be very content living within the limitations of being dependent upon a generous and good God. It's a safe place. It's a beautiful place. I've got good work and good relationships and nothing is wrong and all is well until the serpent shows up. The serpent engages the woman in a discussion, not about trees, but about the character of God. And way too quickly, with some simple prodding, the woman and then the man are awakened by the intoxication of independence. <gasps> we could be like God, the people made like God say. They're already made in the image of God. They're simply a little lower than God. They're the chief pinnacle of all creation. They're the only part of creation that God says, very good. God made Yosemite Valley and the Swiss Alps and said, good job. Made a human being and said, now very good. But a human being slips into the temptation all the time to believe that there is just a bit more we can have a bit more we can be. You know this, right? You have the job of your dreams, and all of a sudden wonder whether or not the corner office with the heavier furniture would be a bit better. You have everything you ever desired with the family that you ever wanted. You have children who love you. You have Thanksgiving table that is overflowing with things that are great. And all of a sudden you wonder if just maybe at least a five-pack of abs, which is that would do it. 
It's this dissatisfaction of wanting a bit more. And here, right in the middle of the garden, we see this within itself out. This is this incredible irony. The only difference between humans and God is that they need God, and God doesn't need them. The only difference between humans and God is that God doesn't need us, and we are dependent upon God for our daily breath. And this is why the wording in this verse 5 is so important. It's knowing good and evil literally means not needing anyone else to live well. The temptation is to live on your own terms. It's to make up your own rules. It's living without dependence. It's being God. It's saying, I don't want to be part of this great play. I want to run my own show. And in that one moment, they bit off far more than any of us can chew. They become disconnected from God. And with them, we believe all the human race is too. Which leads to the way it is. Distrust, disconnection, and death. Distrust, disconnection, and death. Sin is at the heart, distrusting God. The woman faced a choice. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to believe? The good God who recreated you, who gave you a meaningful existence, who gave you great freedom, who gave you purpose and safety and love? Or are you going to believe this creature that twists God's words? In this whole dialogue, that's the issue. Whose words will you trust? The human creature, who will you trust? Notice here, and be really careful, that the serpent is not described as Satan. Not yet. Later on, we will look at that theologically and we'll attribute that to Satan. But at this moment, it's even more scary than Satan. Because at this moment, it's not about Satan, not about some deep, big, angelic, powerful, demonic being that overwhelms us. At this moment, it's just another creature. And it reminds us that even when things are going incredibly well, anybody's words can take you away from God. By trusting anybody's words besides God's clear word, the distrust leads to disconnection. And so they hide when God comes to see them. They blame each other. Doesn't this seem like every family system you've ever known? Adam begins to exert authority over the woman, even naming her like she's one of the animals that he, that he tends. Wanting to be like God, that is autonomous from God. God gives them what they want. And they're banned from evil. They now have to struggle to live without close companionship and protection and freedom that God gives. Do you want to be like God? Good. you want to be autonomous? Good. you want to be disconnected from me? There you go. And their way back is blocked. And a whole bunch of consequences follow. Creatures are at odds with each other. Life becomes life-bearing, becomes life-threatening. Love becomes a play in power. Work becomes a struggle to survive. And death follows. So what do we do? If this is the way it is, what's the way forward? Let me say this. It's not to go back. You can't get back to Eden. You can't try hard enough. You can't be good enough. You can't say, if I only tidy it all up, or if I only get rid of all the snakes. You can't engineer your world or re-engineer your world in such a way that it'll finally be the way you want it to be. Because there's only one way out, and it's through.
you must trust God again. You must hear the voice of the one that called you into being and say yes and the only way for us, for, as a human race, to come through this story and see the healing of our world is to trust God again. It is to move forward. Remember, the way to Eden is blocked. There's no way back, but there is a future, and there is a future going forward of a promised land, and of a great kingdom, and of a new creation, and of a new Jerusalem. Because there's incredible grace in the middle of it. There's a great temptation for each of us to want to trust our own, our own skills, our own abilities. We all know what this can be. And in the instant when we have screwed up our lives, when the instant that we experience the pain of the brokenness of this, this world, you can choose. You can blame others like Adam and Eve. You can blame God. Why did he make serpents anyway? You can deny that it's a problem. I never really liked Eden, actually. I kind of like being on my own. But you're still where you are, and you can't go back. So don't ever forget. The way to Eden is barred. You can't get there on your own strength. So what do you do? You trust God again. You trust his word. You trust the one who said that the world is good. You trust the one who gave you everything except for the limitation that you couldn't be in. You trust the one who had every right to kill Adam and Eve at that moment and didn't. Look at the text. If you look closely, it says, you will die this very day. Trust the one who didn't destroy Eden and start over. God didn't hit control, all delete, and start it over again. Trust the one who gave you, who even gave them clothes to wear. Traveling clothes. Mercy. Trust the one who made it possible for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God to find life with God again. For Eden and the fall is not the final word. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians, the text we'll get to later. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead also came through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive. My friends, the story is about the fact that everything is supposed to be different than it is. And someday it will be. Live a life of turning, of trusting God even in your sin. Of turning again to God with your sin. Of trusting and heeding his word about everything. And letting God's son, Jesus Christ, lead you to the new Eden, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. For a day will come for those who say yes and enter into the story. It will take us not back to Eden, but to the promised land. Some years ago, I went on a retreat, and a Benedictine monk asked all of us to consider this question. He said, theologically, do you know what the word sin means? It's an archer's term. It literally means to miss the mark. It's when you take aim at something that you want to hit, and you miss it. And that's considered called a sin. All of us have had that experience, right? Trying our very best, trying to live a life in such a way, thinking we were so earnestly doing something, and something happened and we missed the mark. But here's the question he had us consider. When you sin and you miss the mark, what were you aiming at? 
What were you aiming at when you sinned? What were you trying to get that God was already going to give you? What were you trying to secure for yourself that God would graciously give you in his own time? What was it that you believed you needed to make you complete when you were already made completely in the image of God? For each of us, it could be something different. What is it that you're aiming at when you find yourself falling back into the brokenness of entering into the way the world is not supposed to be? What is it like when you get, when you get so frustrated that you lose your temper, that you scream at your children, that you are tempted? Amen. Can you trust that the God who created this world good and created you in love will give you all you need? Can you believe that the God who made you and is remaking you, wants to use you for his purposes, that your life will have purpose and freedom and meaning and joy. When you fall into the brokenness of this world and you experience firsthand the way the world is not supposed to be, when you sin, what were you aiming? Can you trust God with that? Let's pray together. Lord, we are reminded, we'll be reminded all day of this overwhelming sense, this palpable reminder that the way you intended the world to be is still very close at hand. To be in a community of family and friends who are brothers and sisters, even though we barely know each other, don't even know that all of our favorite movies. To have so much food we can fill ourselves up over and over and over again. To have nothing on the agenda except to try to decide whether we want to take a nap or play. To be surrounded by these woods that are so filled with the sounds of your creation. To be led into worship sing with our heart's desires. To have the future before us in the faces of our children. We get a taste of the way the world was supposed to be and the way that it will one day be. And yet we know that it's not and it's not because of us that we are not the way we're supposed to be. So dear God, this morning we pray that you would help us to believe in you, to believe your good news, that you are bringing your kingdom, your reign, and your rule, and that when we live with you as our sovereign, when your kingdom is here, when your will is being done, on earth as it is in heaven, we will experience the foretaste of the joy your good intentions. Help us to be able to say yes to you, to trust your word over the word of any creature who slithers into our world. Experience more and more the joy of being new.